Welcome to Alma Matters, where sports, smarts, and life after McGill come together in one great conversation, led by your host, Earl Zuckerman. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Earl the Pearl Zuckerman. Thanks for joining us today on Alma Matters. In each episode, we'll speak with prominent members of our alumni about their McGill experience and how it has impacted their lives and careers. Alma Matters is presented by the Redbird Sports Shop, the official retail store of McGill Athletics and Recreation. Shop for McGill Apparel at redbirdsportshop.ca. With us is Hubert T. Lacroix, a former women's basketball coach at McGill, who was inducted in 2017 in the founder category of the McGill Sports Hall of Fame. A native Montrealer, Hubert was raised in the town of Mount Royal. He graduated from McGill Law School in 1976 and followed with an MBA in 1981. While practicing full-time law, he began a nine-year tenure as a part-time coach at McGill, women's basketball. He guided the Martlets to an overall record of 190 wins and 137 losses. The crowning moment was capturing the Quebec Conference Championship in 1986, which was the team's first title in a dozen years. After stepping down the next year to refocus on his law career, he remained an active participant at McGill for another two decades by serving on the athletics board. He also helped champion the cause for McGill to have a full-time women's basketball coach a project which finally came to fruition in 1996. Lacroix was a basketball color analyst at three Summer Olympic Games. And more recently, he served two two terms as president and CEO of the CBC and Radio Canada, where he oversaw the coast-to-coast digital transformation of the national public radio and television broadcaster. He sat on the board for uh, numerous companies and nonprofit organizations. He's also an associate professor with the Faculty of Law at the University de Montréal. And last year, he joined the law firm of Blake, Castles, and Graydon as their strategic counsel. Welcome, Hubert Lacroix. Hello, I was listening to this, and uh, that's a whole lot of losses, you know, 137 <laughs> losses. <Boy. Yeah. laughs> but, the, but the wins were a lot more than the losses, and in, in that era, that wasn't very common at McGill. You, 190 wins is pretty, uh, it's pretty still up there on the list. Uh, I, the last time yeah, I checked yeah. the list I, of all-time wins. I thank you on focusing on that side of the, of the ledger. <laughs> Indeed. You, uh, Barrett, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, I've pretty much known you, I guess, since... Uh, since you started with the Martlets, uh, I was at McGill from 76 on, and you graduated from law school in 76. So, um, uh, actually, uh, kind of that was almost around the time when um, when uh, Ken Dryden was uh, graduating from law school. I think he graduated maybe a couple years earlier. Did you have, uh, ever cross paths with Ken Dryden during your years uh, at McGill? Actually, not at McGill, but I actually crossed paths with him when uh, in my, my CBC, Radio Canada job, he had um, just did an interview view and uh it was in western canada and i crossed him he was walking out i was walking in and um uh shook his hand and we chatted for a few minutes uh i think we were in winnipeg and um i i mean admired the man obviously what was kind of fascinating about ken dryden is that mcgill law never gave him any kind of break for his time as a as a goaltender at the time he was coming out of the voyageur system uh he he, I mean, he was coming out of the American League. He um, was starting to play in this famous series uh, against the Boston Bruins, where he actually stole the cup. Um, and Earl, he, um, he, because there were some such thing as playoffs, he ended up not being able to write his exams at that time. He was only entitled to write the subs. But then if he failed on the subs, he didn't have any backup. So, uh, no pas droit. Well, just wondering how you got into coaching. You were in, you were just finished law school, a young working lawyer, and all of a sudden you're coaching the Miguel Martlett's basketball team. How did, how did that come about? Well, it started actually when I was walking in. I was hoping to play for McGill. I, I graduated from uh, Brebeuf in 1973, walked into law school. And then um, I had a civil procedure class two more two evenings in uh, during the week, so that couldn't really fit with the practice schedule. So I went back to Lebeuf. I coached the 13, 14 years olds. At that time, they were called Bantams. Then I continued working at the uh, at Lebeuf, coached the, um, the varsity men's team at the CJEP level. At that time, Lebeuf was a 
uh, a triple-A team, so the Dawsons and the Vanniers of the world uh, were our opponents. I was heavily involved uh, with the Basketball Federation. I was a junior coach with the junior men's provincial program, uh, assistant coaching, and um, uh, my mentor at that time was Bob Como, who for years and years was Mr. Basketball in the province of Quebec. So through coincidences, I think um, Bob Dubo, who was at that time the McGill Athletics uh, Director and was there for, as you know, many, many years, I think he speaks to Bob Como and he says, do you have a coach anywhere that would be interested in taking over our, our women's program? So I went from coaching the AAA varsity team at Brebeuf to coaching women at McGill. Wow, so overnight. That's, uh, that's how it happened. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and were you were you nervous about making that jump? Or excited? Never believe uh, it. Uh, so, because I, I walk in and there are two players who are older than their coach, and wow. I didn't want to actually tell them uh, <laughs> that uh, I was younger than they were. And because I was already a lawyer, they kind of didn't figure out that I was, um, or they thought I was older. <laughs> um, and that was the beginning of. Um, of my experience with the Martlets, right, and and uh, um, r- rumor rumor has it that you that you never took a paycheck. You turned your salary back into the team, donated to the team budget back then. Well, I mean, we didn't have any any money, so uh, and we wanted to build a program. And if you can believe this, when I walked into McGill, our women played in skirts. So we wanted to buy uniforms. Mm. We wanted to change the format. We wanted to, we wanted at that time, the John Abbott Islanders who are the best um, college team in the country. uh, We wanted their kids to join our program Um, and we needed to be credible. So we needed a few dollars to recruit. We needed to upgrade our schedule. We needed to travel. So I I chose to, um, to do that. Yeah. Um, so you named a couple names. Are there, is there anyone else to I guess uh, one of the team's all-time leading scorers was Tina Fasoni. She'd be another one to be at the top of your list. Um, near the it's, top of your it's, list. So I was, as we, uh, we I'm preparing for this, I was, I just put down some people and it's, it's unfair for the people I won't name because that's nine years times 12 players. That's 108 players. Perhaps people were on rosters for more than one year. But, um, you know, the great point guards, Karen Diaz, Janet Swords, who finally got us over the hump and we won our championship with her. Uh, one of the greatest leaders that played for us that came out of Laval and then ran their program for years, then the Marquis. Um, right. So you look at this, you look at how we were influenced. When Trois-Rivières, as you probably remember, UQTR had a really good basketball program. They were fighting with us and they were fighting with Laval to get the best francophone players into their program. And at that time, the Cégep de Maisonneuve was really strong. So they had attracted really good players, Ellen Cowan, Nancy Villemur, Nancy Avery. And when they folded, Miguel got the benefit of all these players that came to us. And again, all of a sudden, we became ranked because of the, because of the of the of the cancellation of their program so you start putting all of these people together and then you have uh, i mean we were lucky enough to have great uh, not only great players but all these these women we're talking about all went to school and um, all graduated with with some some really heavy academic loads we had two greville smith scholars and i'm not sure that any of the other mcgill teams over the years can actually say that on a roster of 12 we had they had two Greville Smith scholars in Corey Steppen and Leslie Fellows, and Leslie was still, in, I know, in the McGill environment as, uh, I think, one of the deans or something. Indeed, the Greville Smith scholarship is one of the most prestigious academic scholarships uh, at McGill. And uh, typically, one, uh, it, it's, it's rare to see more than uh, a, a couple of them that, are, uh, that go to athletes. So to have two yeah. athletes on the same team with that scholarship, it's uh, quite a testament. Um, I remember playing uh, Trivial Pursuit, the team against Corey and Leslie, and Corey and <laughs> Leslie won. Yeah, I can imagine it. They would have got every yeah. every question correct. They were pretty good. Yeah. Uh, Hubert, you were a broadcaster at three different Olympic Games. Uh, I'm wondering if you have any memories that stand out from those uh, uh, games. I think you were at the LA Games, I believe, in 84, and then maybe the Seoul Games in 88, and then I think it was Atlanta, perhaps, in 90, 96? Yeah. No, actually, I went to 92, the Barcelona Games, okay. the first dream team. So how can I not say this as mm. being a an important time. Uh, I will remember a few things from those years. Um, I remember in 1988 being in Seoul in Korea 
and it's the last of the uh, real uh, of the non-professional American basketball pro uh, programs. So the U.S. is still playing with college kids. They lose to the Russians in the final. And Gomelsky, who's the coach at that time, uh, in the interview room, because that's what you do when you're a broadcaster, you go to an interview room. Actually, um, when people say, congratulations, how do you feel about beating the Americans as well? I mean, beat the Americans today, but watch, us, watch what's going to happen in 1992. All the pros are going to come in and play. Because every other team in the world basically had pro players on their rosters, except for the States. And so the question from, um, from one of the people in the room was, all right, so how do you feel about this? And everybody expected him to say, well, it's not really, it's not fair. The Americans are going to be too strong. And he said, it's the best thing that can happen to basketball because it's going to make, it's going to, it's going to elevate the quality of the game. Uh, and I look forward to all the other teams having to raise their game to meet the Americans. So, here comes 1992, the dream team, and by chance, <laughs> the CBC Radio-Canada team is in the hotel, literally the door beside mm. the, the dream team. And the buses and the, 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 from the, the, from the, you would know when the, when the U.S. team would come in because it would be, they'd close the street, you'd have, I mean, they were like rock stars. Really? And I, and I remember uh, the leadership of the Dave Robinsons of the world. Um, uh, and, you know, Barkley, who throws an elbow. Uh, and then at the, next, um, at the next press conference, you've got, um, you've got Clyde Drexler, who says, um, that's not going to happen again. And they kind of brought him back into the middle. And they were ambassadors. I remember them taking pictures against Angola before the game can you believe really? the two teams yeah. in the middle of the floor yes and there's a there's a picture uh, before they play not after they play before they play so i enjoyed watching that i enjoy being there i enjoy interviewing michael jordan and asking questions to jordan one-on-one -on -one. Mm. i was interested by the fact that there's a guy by by the name of tony kukash who was coming out of yugoslavia at that time who was one of the best players in the world uh non-american and the Bulls had actually recruited him and uh, in a very, very high-profile way. And uh, they played twice against uh, the States. The first time, Kukash was not very good. The second time, he was better. But you could see that that annoyed uh, Jordan, and he wanted to show the world that they were better than he was. Um, but I remember asking him about this, and I, one of the highlights of my little broadcasting career was actually... Uh, asking a few questions to Michael Jordan on Tony Kukash. Yeah, not too many people seem to mind the fact that the U.S. won uh, their games by something like 50 or 60 no, points. No, Everyone was just that. enthralled with the stars, the uh, the incredible players, and, and, and what uh, what attention it brought to the sport. Absolutely. Yeah, Magic, Larry Bird. I mean, everybody was on that team. Mm. Um, and it was like the, there was an awe. They would walk onto the floor and just the buzz in the warm up, there was nobody actually cared about the games. They were they were looking for right. dunks, and they were looking just to be able to be around them uh, when that was happening. But the Quite best a, team, yeah. the best team at that those games weren't the men. Women's the the the, the USA women's basketball program, their women were outstanding. And that's disappointing because all the focus were on the men games right, yeah. and the, the best basketball was being played by the, their women's team. Great players. Yeah, quite, quite a, a turn to the, uh, the Olympics when they started allowing the pros in because, they, as you mentioned, the other teams really basically had professionals, uh, especially like in hockey with the Russians. Uh, they were considered professionals by everybody except the IOC. And yeah. when they made that rule change to allow the pros in the game, it certainly brought a heightened interest uh, among the fans, the media, really uh, around the world. Quite yep. a change. Uh, you mentioned the Soul Games. The other thing that the Souls game was really known for was the Ben Johnson uh, um, saga, <laughs> where he, he tested positive. Do you remember, like most Canadians that watched it on TV, know where they were? I know that I was at the Pines Tavern right across from the McGill Athletics Complex, just down the street on Pine and Park. And I watched him run that race there. Do you remember where you were when that oh, race yeah. was, or you were in the middle of a basketball game? No, we. I was at the basketball uh, venue, 
there were no basketball game being played. We were waiting for, you know, between the morning program and the afternoon program. We watched that race. Uh, and uh, you could, because, you know, Carl Lewis, remember, was the, was the villain. Uh, and nobody wanted him to win. So when Ben Johnson won, um, it was a spectacular success. I remember going home that night, and when they saw my Canadian logo on my on my card around my neck, um, the taxi driver drove me back to the hotel with no charge. He was so happy. Wow. And then the day after, um, you're kind of hiding because they're yeah. saying that we're cheaters, and that was a very... It, disappointing moment. It was the highest high and the lowest low, I think, for oh, all yeah. Canadians that, that watched that yeah. Olympic Games. It really yeah. was uh, something that'll stick uh, in our memories for a Absolutely. long time. Um, I want to touch briefly on, uh, before we get into your uh, more time at McGill, I want to touch briefly on your time at the Radio Canada and the CBC as the CEO. Uh, you were there for 10 years. You served two terms. I, I think the normal term is one term, but I, I could be wrong on that. The, what what uh, do you feel was your greatest accomplishment, or your greatest challenge there, and your greatest achievement uh, at the uh, CBC? So I actually spent 10 and a half years there because uh, they couldn't find seemingly anybody at the end of my term to replace me. It was difficult. And so I spent 10 years and six months to the day. And for you know as a as a cocktail teaser and, or an icebreaker in conversations that's the longest time anybody has sat in that chair in the history of the corporation so what does that mean it doesn't mean much uh, except that um, um a number of a number of things happened during 10 and a half years and um when i what i remember most twofold first changing the relationship um on the English side between a confrontational relationship with the unions and one where uh, there was respect, there was, um, there was commitment to actually make the broadcaster better. So that's, that's one thing I think uh, I will remember forever. And uh, the two union leaders that were there uh, were absolutely key to this. Um, on the on the negative side, uh, having to cut because we lost anywhere between six to eight hundred million dollars of funding over 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 that year over those years, uh, having to cut three thousand people from uh, CBC Radio Canada that was twenty five percent of our workforce, having to step in front of the employees and announce them that we need to we needed to do this to ensure the survival of the broadcaster. That was extremely difficult. Um, having them think that we had not fought because I didn't believe in fighting governments on the first page of the paper, but fighting them in boardrooms and pushing back. Um, I think that was also uh, difficult because you couldn't actually tell them what was going on. Um, I was lucky. Straight, I mean, I have no political color, no political background. I was never a person in politics. So... Um, people actually colored me with the uh, with the brush of, of whoever was in power at, at that time. And at that time, it was a conservative government. And strangely, I mean, I had a minister at one point in time, his name was James Moore, who um, understood, really understood well the broadcasting environment and who in his limited, well, not limited environment, in his environment and what he was actually doing uh, in the job he held, uh, fought for the broadcaster. And it was difficult for us to tell, to tell this to our employees um, because they saw the end result of the cut. They don't know what it was before and how we ended up to that number. So that was difficult. Um, Earl, the biggest challenge, uh, the biggest, um, I think the biggest legacy is turning this broadcaster who, who was famous for its legacy um, um, uh, products or, or lines. It was a radio and television network uh, into a completely digital one and, um, and allowing you as a Canadian to go to your phone and access all the services of uh, CBC Radio Canada. Indeed, a, a radical change uh, in all of TV when that, that digital change was 
incredible. Like I, I can remember when it first came about, I'm thinking like, why? I just finished buying a monster TV. I think it was 56 um, <laughs> inches big. And as the first time in my life, I really owned a large TV and I was really enjoying it, you know, HD and all that. And then everyone's saying, well, now, you know, we're, we're going digital and we're going to people are going to watch on their phones. I'm like, why would I want to watch on my phone when I have this huge TV? But maybe uh, maybe I'm just of the old school and uh, watching a game. Some on people TV. actually no, you're not, because some people actually do still watch television uh, in a in a. I won't say old-fashioned way, but on their on a television set, and they use the screen for more. And so some while I should say, some other people simply use the television screen as a screen, and they use a computer. They stick their their um, cable in it, and all of a sudden they go from their phone or their iPad or their computer to a bigger screen. Um, but um, with everything that's going on with. Uh, um, all of the definitions of what you're seeing increasing all the time, uh, the interaction with the screen. Uh, don't throw your 52-inch or 56-inch <laughs> television out yet. You'll, you'll. I think the broadcaster is going to find a way for you to use it. Okay. Um, just wondering, how did your McGill education and experience uh, on the campus prepare you for your time at the CBC? There were there any uh, specifics that you could uh, come up with that that kind of um, Gave you a, a bit of a direction to help you over there? I think that I've, I learned so much from my basketball teams, whether it was recruiting them, whether it was managing them, whether it was watching them uh, interact with me in my way of interacting with them over the years. Uh, that some of the best lessons that I learned from those for them from those years became uh, the management principles that were in my backpack as I as I moved into these jobs and still today I often tell the story of Annie Constantinides and we didn't mention Annie I don't know why she was our, our point guard for five years and small, an extraordinary small, I remember a remarkable five, point guard I have three remarkable guard comes out of Athens Greece her sister Sophie played for us any, there was no three-point line at that time. If there had been, nobody would have been even close in the in the McGill record books for the number of uh, points scored by a McGill player. Anyway, so any uh, spends five years with us. Incredible student, uh, graduates with three degrees, dean's list all over, and comes she comes to me at the end and says, "You know what, Lacroix? It's um, and, and you know the point guard has a special relationship with the coach. It's the same thing as the the football quarterback, or in some cases, your your goaltender in hockey." Uh, the relationship is you. Re she's the extension of your thoughts and the way that you want to run the program. That run the program, run the floor. So you've got to be on the same wavelength. And Annie was uh, was was a great leader. Um, so we had these run-ins all the time, trying to see, okay, how do you see the floor? What do you want to do with it? So at the end of the five years, she says, "I really enjoyed playing McGill basketball, but I want to tell you something. I want to tell you that with you, that squeaky wheel always gets the grease." Mm. I said, "What do you mean?" I said, well, you know, it was an extraordinary good student. I stayed in school. I did everything you wanted me to do, ran your floor, was a starting point guard. And you spend a lot of time, and she actually said, I think, more time. But the people who were not the good students, who created maybe some havoc on the team, uh, trying to always bringing the black sheep of the family into our, our, in our program, mm -hmm. She said, you know, maybe you want to remember this one day. Um, you got to spend a lot of quality time on the people that are actually your leaders and are doing things well. Mm. And they should, they should get your recognition. So from that moment on, I always focused on the 80% around me that um, did well and wanted to contribute and didn't forget the other 20%, but realized that I couldn't create unanimity around me all the time. But that 80% of my team, if they make that happen, the organization is going to go somewhere. Interesting. So I, I will always remember that uh, that intervention by Annie. And um, you went on to do uh, another five or six years later a um, an MBA at the Daisy Hotel Faculty of Management. Uh, were there any lessons that you could kind of draw from your MBA program that were kind of beneficial to you in your uh, future after you um, left McGill? The MBA was the, the was the lawyer realizing that there's a really big business world out there, 
uh, it was um, the French word is the décloisonnement. You know, when you take the blinkers off, right? Uh, when you're a lawyer, and I practiced law for so many years, you're focused on a particular issue. The great advantage that the MBA gave me was this this explosion of of angles on a particular situation. And I think that was uh, extremely important. And when I walked out of, um, of the MBA in 1981, I had to decide whether I was going back to law or uh, accepting jobs from banks and investment bankers who were recruiting me in those positions. And I decided to go back to law because I figured that I didn't know enough of law. And I didn't know enough to use the law in whatever business situation because I was only, I mean, I graduated in 76, spent one year articling, 77, eight, so I'm, I'm a three-year lawyer um, with an MBA, so that wasn't enough. So I went back and practiced law, Earl, to make sure that I was going to be able to use the law in a, in a, in a, in a real way in my, with my business interest. And I knew, strangely, I knew that I was going to be exiting law at one point in time. Hmm. And then uh, I did that in 2000 when I uh, I went to Telemedia and I ran their holding company. Okay, uh, let's go back in time just to the beginning at Miguel. How did you end up at Miguel in the first place? Did you did you have that in your head as a vision all along through uh, going through I mean, College Bebeuf at the the CJP level? Uh, did you know you were going to McGill? Or how yes. did that decision come about? I just I just knew I wanted to be a McGill person very early on. You um, you're a francophone. You grow up uh, in a <laughs> in an environment with uh, nuns and Jesuits for all your life. You see the colors, and I mean this is not corny. I mean I I I knew the school. I was I was impressed by the McGill colors. I wanted to be a McGill person, so um, that's where that's where I went to law school. Do you remember your first day on campus? Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a long story. It was a little complicated getting into McGill, so I got to McGill, and I am by far because I I, I skipped uh, a bunch of grades when I was younger um, in 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 school, so I end up in a classroom. I will always remember this, uh, and I'm by far the youngest person in the room, like by far, average first year law school at that time might be three, three, four, five, six, something like this. And I'm 18 years old. So my biggest concern is getting the keys from my mother's car, you know, to take my date, my Saturday date to, uh, to the movies. And you got people in the room who've got kids who are divorced, who uh, are fighting with landlords. Uh, I mean, they they're they're talking about um, uh, issues with their prof- with the kids' professors, the choices of schools for their kids. So there was no connecting to that crowd was was significantly complicated. And that's when I decided. Well, I tried to play for McGill, didn't work for the reasons we explained. So I went back. Brebeuf, and I started coaching basketball. So basketball for me, not only was I enjoyed coaching the kids, it was sanity for me. It was what kept me in balance when I was going through uh, law school, uh, because if it had not been there, I'm not sure I would have gone through law school in that way. And law school wasn't my first choice. I wanted to be a phys ed person. And my mother, I always remember my father looked at me and said, come on, get a real job. And then if you uh, finish law school, I will pay for your phys ed degree when you decide to do your phys ed degree. So obviously, I uh, took my father on and said, oh, yeah, you think I'm not going to go back for a phys ed degree? <laughs> obviously, he was right. I never went back. And um, But that's how I got into law. It was like backing into law instead of being excited about going to law. Hmm. Interesting. The, you know, I, I, whenever I speak to a, a Miguel um, student athlete, uh, for me, the uh, the thing that comes across more, and I imagine it's like this at any school, is is the um, the family like group that they have in in their on their team, and that their whole life really at the university, most of it revolves around being with their team, going to practice, uh, going to games, getting on a bus for a road trip or on a plane. And uh, it seems to me like that is the center of their universe. It, it really is, seems to be a foundation for student-athletes at the university level. Yeah, and you know what happens to the coach also? 
The coach realizes, and this, this is easy to understand, that you become the most important influence in the life of, your, the, of the athletes on your team. Why is that? Because you see them. I mean, they go practice six times, a, six times a week, five, six times. You travel 42 games. We took our teams on the road. We took them to Europe with Butch Staples, the men's team at that time. We uh, took them to Florida. We did incredible road trips. So um, they actually see you in their lives more than their parents. Mm. Many of them have left home to come to McGill. Unless they live with their boyfriend or girlfriend, they still see you more than their significant other because they spend so much time on the floor. So you realize very quickly that the influence that you have on these on these women goes much beyond playing basketball, throwing a pass, or shooting at the hoop. And then there's there's uh, there's a you know, there's a cruising speed. They understand the routine. They take care of themselves. Uh, they're a little older. They, they, they look at the veterans on the team. They learn from them. Um, and then there's, there's, so there's, there's their habits that are created. First few weeks, first few months, first year in school, um, for a person who's never been in Montreal, it's a, it's a different environment. We're a big school in a big city. Mm -hmm. um, wondering if you just uh, if you can recall any special connections did you have any friends that you made at McGill that were kind of lifelong friends uh, I, I gather most of your friends were sort of basketball related but the, whether it be in law or elsewhere in the MBA program uh, were there mm -hmm. any um, in the, uh, individuals that you met way back then that you kind of stayed in contact ever since I went through law school with a guy by the name of Luc Lissoir, who still today, and we don't talk often enough, but um, we, uh, we've kept in touch and for, for all these years. That's 40 years. Um, and two guys from in the MBA program were, a special, um, were very special to me, Carl Hantho of the Hantho family. And Steve Shammy, who I, and interestingly enough, uh, came back into my life because... My kid brother is a medical doctor, as you know. Yes, he was the medical doctor for the McGill teams for years, and but is the McGill doctor, uh, the McGill doctor, the doctor for the Montreal Alouettes, and he's been their doctor for twenty some years. And Steve Shammy is the general counsel of the CFL. So all, all sorts of uh, of initiatives that the CFL puts out with respect to safety of his of their players. My kid brother. Well, kid, he's, he's only nine years younger than me, but he's still a kid brother. Mm -hmm. And Steve Shami crossed, crossed paths. And it was interesting to see that that was the link by which we came back together years after. And Steve's daughter works at Blake's in Toronto, a firm that I now work with. Really interesting. So, Small world. Very, indeed. Uh, your years as a student, uh, do you remember what you did at night, like for, uh, you know, after uh, studying for exams or something? Did you have sort of a, a late night uh, food spot that you would go to? Uh, in my area, it was always this Kojak's place. Uh, we would go for souvlaki at three in the morning. I'm wondering if there was a, if you had a favorite uh, hangout uh, to go for a, a quick bite after, uh, either after a road trip or when you're, um, uh, when you're in law school, was there a place that you kind of hung out uh, uh, as grumpies on uh, grumpies on bishops. Ah, that's where uh, all the writers hung out. <laughs> that's a, that's where I went all the time. And um, uh, Thursdays at that time was popular, so we'd eat there. But uh, Grumpy's was my was my favorite bar. It was quiet um, and it was fun, and the people there were kind of different. So that's where I always went. Did you have a favorite study uh, study spot on campus? Um, I actually didn't study much, well, you know, the libraries of McGill, but we found very quickly that at Université de Montréal, the theological, if that's the theology building, had a library where nobody, nobody was. So that's how we ended up. Luke and I did all of our bar exams in that, in that library. Uh, there were, there were, um, it was quiet. It was just on the side of the mountain, big windows. So I kind of lived strangely being a McGill student in that library. 
Interesting. I, I, I never saw Larry my first year at McGill, but jumping ahead into your coaching uh, time, um, one of the, the questions, whenever I speak to McGill coaches and I speak to many, the uh, the one thing that always seems to be a common thread with them is uh, the, the, the they were really impressed by how much uh, their student-athletes felt uh, about playing for the school, putting on that McGill uniform. Did, did you sense that back in the, in your era? For sure. Because of what McGill stood for, because of the academic institution, and because of the fact that, and I'm not knocking anybody else playing for another team here, but because of the academic load that they had to carry, where they got no break. I mean, full loads, uh, exams, working, uh, and then playing what we were trying to be, which is a nationally recognized basketball program. And in your intro to me, you said I, I lobbied very hard for a, a full-time coach. At one point in time, in the top 10 programs in the country, I was the only part-time coach. And I don't think that was fair to the athletes because the other coaches could recruit uh, more t for, for, for longer periods of time. They could actually spend more time preparing. They could actually work on their, on their uh, schedules longer. They could actually work with their strength coaches and do all sorts of stuff that we couldn't do. And we were ranked three, four, five in the country. But then you turn around and Wayne Hussey at Bishops is a full-time coach and he's the coach of the national program or the assistant coach with Don Mercury at that time. Mike Kiki at Concordia is a full-time coach. Uh, and you go down the roster of all of these great programs, they have full-time people. So to commit, do you get these kids that commit literally five years of their lives all the time to McGill to play? They needed McGill to commit to putting them in a position where they had a full-time person in charge of them. So I was really happy when that happened. This was very important. It was a huge and, change uh, to the program, no, no doubt. When absolutely. Full-time status. And, and now there's two full-time yes, uh, spots at, uh, for the basketball program uh, on the women's side. And so it's uh, a, a major, major boost to the program. And all these changes have really paid off that the... You kind of fought for. Uh, I know you were when you were on the athletics board. This was an issue about what we're doing with our how many sports teams we had back then. We had about close yep. to fifty teams, and we eventually cut down to uh, thirty. So that was tough because I was the, the the chair of that committee that we called the remember it was called the reclassification committee. Correct. And we had sort of forty sports, uh, all sorts of sports with the McGill jersey, but uh, one point in time. You need to make a choice of who you're going to support because you can't simply, you can't simply, um, again, you can't compete and give the athletes a chance to be the best if you don't support them. But you can't, with the limited resources that the athletics department had at that time and still, I'm sure, has, uh, you couldn't uh, run 40 programs. So we started ensuring that we made choices. And I will always remember, we, we um, on that committee, there was Carrie and Arup and, and, and Dick Pound. Can you believe Dick Pound was, I mean, at that time, he's got 20 hats on his head. And he never missed a single meeting of our athletics board. Yes, he cared about McGill. He cared about athletics. And he was at the center of these conversations with me on classification. So, we made some choices. We said, if you are a level one program, you are going to have this kind of support from the school. And we started making choices on what, literally, strategic planning. If you are, let's say, a male volleyball player, where do you come from in the province of Quebec? What's the what's the importance of that sport in the in the system in Quebec? Where do we recruit for? And we did this for all the sports, and that's where. And Earl, you'll remember this. That's where we decided to invest heavily in the women's hockey team. Because at that time, there was no McGill women's hockey team or just about. So there was a, there were a lot of efforts in putting together and structuring a support system for the, for the Martlet uh, female uh, uh, hockey team. And we decided to not fund the male volleyball team, but to fund the, the women's volleyball team. So... Those choices were difficult. It's tough to tell athletes that, um, yeah, you'll be able to play, but you won't have the kind of support that the other teams will have. 
and look at some of the choices that we've made and look at Rachel Bilibo's program, look at what Peter Smith did with his. Um, so I'm not saying that we made all and only the right decisions, but um, those decisions came from an effort to focus our resources on the teams that had the best chances to compete at the national level with the McGill name on their shirts. Indeed, uh, I remember that time well. It was quite controversial uh, which team should be funded, and uh, I remember there was a lot of stress among the student athletes, the coaches, yep. the staff. It was, it was a huge uh, time uh, for the, making decisions for the future, and the women's hockey program and basketball program taken off uh, drastically since then. And they've both won national championships, and it's it's quite a remarkable uh, turnaround. And now McGill has implemented a women in sports program. Um, about two years ago to try and encourage more uh, females uh, going into coaching and uh, giving support for, for coaching. Um, I, I want to talk about discipline briefly from sport. Uh, that's really key in sport. Uh, did you find that it paid dividends, it pays dividends in the, in the business world when, when you made that move? Uh, obviously, uh, the answer is yes to this. Uh, when I recruit, uh, I spent a lot of time recruiting for at that time. I was at McCarthy Tetro Law Firm. I was head uh, of the recruiting committee. And when I watched the CVs come to us and I saw that you were a varsity athlete or if you had three jobs, uh, frankly, I'm sure we all looked at the marks, but that wasn't important. We knew that from the discipline that came with being a varsity athlete, the the focus on the preparation and being able to come to a uh, to uh, in our case 42 games so 42 times in the year you got to come prepared and you've got to deliver your best at a particular time uh, that discipline comes with you and it uh, it's in again your backpack of values as you look uh, around you and you recruit on your management teams or in on your boards of companies or in, again, a near business environment. So um, that's what you try to do. I have two girls, 12 and nine right now. Um, it's, it's already started, uh, whether it's a swim team or um, other individu individual or, or, or collective sports that they're gonna play in, that's really important. The concept of being on a team Respecting values, respecting your teammates, uh, failing because that's a that's a big pair. It's a big pair of sports. I mean, you try hard and you fail, you lose. How you handle that? How you you pick yourself up after something that you really wanted and you didn't get it? Indeed, uh, you mentioned a number of um, different sports. Uh, I know that you're into running. You've done some uh, marathons and half marathons. Um, uh, how how often are you into that? Are, are you uh, is physical activity uh, a major role in your in your life today? If I don't run, um, I don't make it to the end of the week. I still run uh, four, five, six times a week. I have a coach, the same guy who's been uh, who runs our team. He actually um, knows Dennis really well, and we actually use sometimes the McGill facilities. Uh, his name is Doris Langlois. Doris has sort of four or five hundred runners that uh, depend on him. Um, and I've seen Doris in private. I mean, I run from six to five. I'm sorry, from six to seven with him twice a week. And then the programs that um, that he sets up allow me to uh, to keep my sanity. And in this pandemic times, um, the pandemic time, uh, if I don't run, I'm not going to make it. Yeah, it's uh, sometimes you just have to stop and smell the roses. You know, the um, uh, one thing I want to touch on Hubert is the uh, the name change. This was a very controversial change. Uh, McGill dropped the, the men's name uh, about a year and a half ago, roughly, and uh, it was it brought about a lot of controversy with the alumni. And there's obviously two sides to this story, and maybe even three sides to the story. You were involved in that process a little bit. Maybe you can sort of give us a general uh, update of where we are with that. What I'd like to say about the process that I witnessed is how committed the people who sat on that committee were. 
I must have been 15 or 16 on, on that committee. The um, You had alumni, you had uh, coaches, you had, uh, we were talking about Annette Kiss a few minutes ago, well, and his husband Rick was on was on that committee. You had Bruno, uh, Bruno Pizzimana, a, a football player for years. You had some really good students, and I'm saying really good students, meaning that they were they knew what they were talking about. They were the the people responsible for the um, for the students' uh, athletic committee, I think it's called. So, what I saw there is an interest in making the right choice for the right reasons uh conversations of substance for what um, what should be in the name uh the pros and cons uh, the um, the matrix that we used what was going to be in the matrix how we were going to listen uh, how will we um get the information from the mcgill environment or from third parties in feeding us this information, the number of times um, uh, or the number of people that came in front of us that we invited, everybody was well prepared. So, what I what I was really impressed with is how people how much people cared about this issue. And again, it goes back to McGill and what McGill represents. And uh, so, I was very proud to be invited uh, to work on this committee with Fabrice Labo, who was the vice chair with me of this of this committee. And um, I'd like to know what um, what you know now that you wish you knew when you were a McGill student. Is there anything that uh, you could think that would assist you from what you've learned over all these years uh, being in the world uh, of law and, and business and broadcasting? That the classes are not about, um, and often, unfortunately, I did that. The classes are not about... Um, trying to find a way to the final exam to get a mark and move on to something else. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a story. In my, um, as I, when I was a law student, we had a constitutional law class. Frankly, I hated constitutional law. Um, the book was like four inches thick. The classes were dry for an 18-year-old in first-year law school. But when I was with the CBC and we were discussing who could actually do what when, when we talked about crown corporations, when we talked about broadcasting and which uh, element we could actually focus on, constitutional law for a whole bunch of reasons came back. And I was, I remember being in a boardroom one day and saying, gosh, I wish I'd actually listen to learn instead of listen to write exams. <laughs> so the message is, you know what? You never know when some of the subject matters that you are actually in, in school, will come back and you'll need that knowledge and you'll kick your behind because you really didn't care about what were you doing in, in school at, uh, during those times. So there's no such thing as... Um, wasted minutes in school and uh, sometimes i actually thought they were right uh, is there anything else that uh, you wish you had spent more time on focusing on uh, while you were a student at mcgill that would have helped you uh, other than yeah, the enjoying the life of a mcgill student hmm. i think i was too serious i think that um, because because i couldn't because i was coming back to brebeuf all the time to coach i didn't spend as much time as i should or as I really wanted to in the McGill environment. So yeah, I was a McGill student, I was a law student, but I went to McGill, took my classes, didn't spend much time there, and went back to um, and went back to Brebeuf or to study in the, the famous library we talked about. Right. If I do this again, boy, I'd slow down, and I would try to enjoy those moments or that moment more. I think I was a better McGill student uh, when I was an MBA student, but I, at that time I was a, f a head coach full-time. Mm. I was um, an MBA person, and I was doing some work part-time for, for the law firm that I was uh, that I'd, I had exited to go uh, uh, follow my class. So, um, um, again, enjoy your moment. Well, that kind of leads into my final question. Uh, if you could push a button and go back in time and spend a day on the McGill campus uh, as a McGill student again, can you kind of walk us through what would be your perfect day 
on campus? Oh, it has to be with, um, so it's at the, in the, in the McGill Athletics environment, it's something that um, uh, starts in the gym, finishes also in the gym. It's watching a game. It's uh, going from McGill around the mountain and running up to uh, the lookout and back down. It's um, spending time uh, with people that I really enjoyed when I was there that I don't I no longer see, the Butch Staples and the Jan Myers and the Harry Zarens who passed away of the world, who made my, uh, my life at McGill so much easier and uh, who dealt with all the, the bad issues. And with Bob Dubo, who without Bob and his, uh, his, um, his belief that I could actually run this program, I would have missed out on, uh, we said, maybe 100, and, 100 to 20, from 100 to 125 extraordinary women that I would never have met. So um, that's, what, that's, that's how, and it has to be um, a warm day. I hate winter, so I'm doing all of this in a really nice, warm day. And nothing like a fall day on the Miguel campus. Uh, just remarkable. Yeah, but you know, you know, fall means uh, snow and cold weather around the corner. So I'd rather do it spring. Let's say April or May. I, I like those days. All right, Hubert Lacroix has been our special guest on uh, uh, Alma Matters our podcast produced by McGill Athletics and Recreation. I'd like to thank you very much for your time and your uh, gracious uh, uh, anecdotes and uh, much appreciated, Hubert, for spending some time with us today. I really enjoyed this, Earl. It brought back great memories, again, of, of, of the great women and people that I was around when I was a McGill person. Still am in my heart and uh, wear it proudly. Thanks for joining us today. Alma Matters is presented by the Redbird Sports Shop, the official retail store of McGill Athletics and Recreation. Shop for McGill Apparel at redbirdsportshop.ca. If you enjoyed this episode of our podcast, please subscribe. This is Earl the Pearl Zuckerman signing off. This has been Alma Matters, a podcast by McGill Athletics and Recreation. Interested in sharing your story? or have a question for our host, get in touch by following us on Facebook or Instagram.